Episode number 32 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschild. This is a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process. Please subscribe to the podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. We wanted to put out a vision for what a really functional higher education system would be that would be affordable for all students, but also really improve the quality of higher education and tackle the really serious equity issues we have in this country. Marcella Bombardieri was an award-winning journalist and investigative reporter for many years, covering higher education, healthcare, and politics, among other subjects, before joining the Center for American Progress in 2016. All those years of reporting are proving to be quite helpful as a policy analyst trying to shift the thinking around how colleges and universities operate. In her new role, she has multiple responsibilities, but one of them still involves writing for publications like The Atlantic and The Boston Globe, creating compelling stories that simultaneously make the case for change in higher education. Now, as a teacher and longtime employee myself at an elite music college, the subject of this interview is one that I particularly care about. We're about to sit down with Marcella Bombardieri. She'll talk about the story of a Texas college innovating new ways to help students in poverty, about what the recent scandal around college admissions says about equity in education, and about the benefits of being a former reporter working on the policy side. Marcella Bombardieri, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. Now, we knew each other when you were doing investigative journalism work as a member of the Boston Globe Spotlight team a few years ago. Yes. Um, Now you're with the Center for American Progress on the policy side. I'm looking forward to talking with you about that work uh, focused on post-secondary education uh, for many reasons, one of which includes because I'm a college teacher myself, so I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about your work. Uh, But I'd like to start by asking you about the arc of your career as a journalist. Describe the path, if you would, that took you from Brown University to a few years later at the Boston Globe Spotlight Team. Sure. I was incredibly fortunate, um, and um, I basically got into uh, journalism as a college student, actually even in high school, and um, found I had a real love for it and sort of fell into the internship world um, and interned at the Globe um, while I was still in college. And so I was able to come back to the Globe um, shortly after graduating and, you know, filling in for someone who was on leave and um, on a temporary basis and then was able to just cling on um, from there, um, you know, which was a very different time. Um, there, you know, there was there were a lot more jobs in journalism than than there are now, unfortunately. Um, but, um, you know, I was I was just incredibly lucky. And I went I started off, um, you know, doing general assignment reports reporting uh, for Metro, which meant, you know, crime and fires and, and you know, court hearings and everything under the sun. And, and I went on to do features um, and um, some overseas stints. Uh, and then um, higher education was my first beat, and I found that I really loved it. So mm. I did that for a number of years. Um, I spent a little time um, covering um, the um, – uh, presidential campaign in 2008, and then um, I got to join the Spotlight team, where I spent five years, um, which was really incredible. 
and um, then went um, uh, went back to higher ed actually for a year. Um, and then I ended up um, leaving the Globe. And, and tell me, Rob, if I'm going into too much detail of my career, but so far um, so good. <laughs> I left the Globe um, around the time my son was born. I wanted to um, spend a year at home with him, and um, my husband uh, finished a PhD and took a fellowship in D.C., so we came down here. And I, re- I really kind of wanted to do something different and, and wasn't sure what it was um, and um, made a, uh, a, a short but um, uh, very interesting stop at Politico as an editor um, before realizing it, you know, I really did want to do something a little bit different from daily journalism. Um, so I, again, feel ridiculously lucky that I found, um, you know, the perfect job for someone who is a writer and a reporter to to also get involved in the policy world and, um, you know, shape debates about higher education and, and to kind of become, have the chance to become more of a real expert on the topic. So uh, I've now been at CAP for Two almost two and a half years, um, and uh, CAP is a progressive think tank that has um, policy teams in just a really wide range of areas. And I um, I work on our higher education team and um, get to use my reporting, my writing. I do editing for other members of my team. Um, I'm not I'm not the only editor. There's a formal formal editing process um, at CAP, so I um, I don't have that that whole burden, but I get to help people with their work um, and do my own work. So um, so it's pretty fun. To go back to the, the journalism phase of your career, what would mm-hmm. you say if you look back at the work you did at The Globe, either on the Spotlight team as an investigative journalist or otherwise on The Beat, what are some of the skills you developed as a journalist that have come in handy in your new gig with the Center for American Progress? Yeah, um, the the skills translate really well. I mean, I would say that it um, it it took me a while to um, you know figure out how to shape my work here to take advantage of those skills. Um, for example, there's a lot of people here who do amazing. Uh, quantitative research. And, um, you know, I definitely can, you know, work with data, no problem. But I don't, you know, if it is relatively simple and not some sort of, uh, you know, statistical analysis. But like I, you know, that's that's just not my strongest suit um, is, you know, and I real it's amazing to watch you know, people who have different skills and what they can do, for example, like looking at data and finding a story in it um, where that might um, <laughs> mm-hmm. not be my... Um, my best skill, but, you know, just um, uh, talking to people and, um, cre- you know, making relationships, whether it's other people who do similar work and finding, um, you know, ways to, um, you know, support their work and ask them for support with our work um, and um, just reporting and finding out what's going on out there. And I think that's the main thing that I, you know, add to our higher education work at CAP is, um, you know, the ability to find what's happening on the ground and to tell those stories and to sort of bring, you know, remind folks that, um, you know, the, the policy decisions are about real people and, you know, to show what what's happening, what what are um, good practices that colleges and universities are working on or experimenting with or have had results with and, um, you know, what, what are students going through. So those are things that you don't necessarily always find in 
you know, D.C. policy discussions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you mentioned the real people aspect of, of what you're doing now. Uh, I thought the Atlantic article you wrote uh, provided a really good example of that. This is an article you wrote about poverty in community colleges uh, last year. And you begin that with a story about the president of this college sleeping outside with his muddy sneakers going inside of the sleeping bag. It was a very compelling image. Uh, so it seemed to me like your storytelling, your journalism chops were uh, very much uh, useful in b- kicking off that, that long-form piece. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that um, that piece was um, just a great opportunity that um, to, where I I came across this institution that I I heard um, the president and a couple of his colleagues speak at a conference, and I could not believe that no one had really written about their work at all at that point. Um, and he is, you know, clearly this um, just unbelievably compelling visionary, and you know, and like the anecdote that you mentioned in the lead of the story about you know that someone. Called president who chooses to go live on the street for two days and two nights um, to experience homelessness is, is pretty gives you a sense of how unusual he is and and absolutely um, and you know since you're <laughs> mentioning that if we let's just give his name and the name of the school as well oh yeah yes Russell Lowry Hart is the name of the president and the institution is Amarillo College um, on the Texas Panhandle. And, um, you know, he, so he's an interesting figure, but also what the school has done is extraordinary. And they've really um, just put um, addressing poverty at the center of everything they do. And they've had results, um, of, you know, improving outcomes for students. And, um, you know, so it was there. Um, there's so many um, policy issues around um, why do we have students in poverty? What are we doing about it? Why aren't they getting the support um, to go to college? Um, why aren't institutions getting the funding they need to serve these students? So there's all that. And then, you know, it just was so lucky to find this hidden gem of a story. And then um, when I went to Amarillo the, on my first trip, I um, uh, met a student who, um, you know, is a, a mother of, with six kids that, um, you know, she's struggling to feed and she's trying to get an education to, um, you know, support her family and give her children more opportunity. And you know, was she was so generous to share that with me, and it, you know, I was lucky to find a a, a character that was that um, good and that open and generous. And at the same time, I also just happened to meet her when these crises related to poverty were unfolding in her life, and her car had been repossessed the day before. So, um, you know, uh, since since I, you know, d- don't get to spend weeks and months in Amarillo, I was it was. Um, it was very. I keep. I keep talking about being lucky, but I have. I have been very lucky, and you know that. Um, you know that I was there to see that, and so it was a perfect kind of opportunity to um, be able to use a narrative and storytelling about people to bring out these really important issues. And it also hearing you you tell that story reminds me of some of the work that you were doing related to higher education back at the Globe. You were really focused more on elite colleges and universities mm-hmm. as opposed to the kind of school you wrote about for that Atlantic article. What was that change in landscape like for you? Uh, I mean, it seems like the affordability issue is something that runs across the board, but what are some of the differences in going from that elite college university beat up here in Boston to what you've been more focused on recently with CAP? 
Yeah, um, I, it is very different, and I I really like having the opportunity to shift my focus. And I will say that I certainly um, I was very happy to write about the elites um, because there was you know there were so many interesting stories, and I also just knew that um, you know if, if you're writing about um, you know Harvard and MIT and BU and Northeastern, then you know you're it was it was just very high profile. So um, you know, it was, and at the, you know, this is a sign of how times have changed. There were two higher education reporters um, at the Globe when I on my first stint on the beat, and mm-hmm. so um, how many are you know, there now? I, uh, one. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So, which you know is is um, you know at least there's one, but um, <laughs> uh, well, actually, you know, you know, I should take that back. Actually, the Globe. Um, has had a reorganization in the past, I don't know, year or year plus. And um, they actually now, there actually are two people who write very well about higher ed. I don't, I'm not sure if they both write about it full time, but there were, there were so many great stories about, you know, what governance issues, um, you know, uh, major turmoil in um, leadership at BU, at Harvard. um, And, you know, writing about Larry Summers at Harvard led to doing a series about women in science um, and women in academia that was really meaningful to me. Um, And I did write as much as I could about affordability and, um, you know, and issues of um, elite institutions needing to um, open up to more low-income students and students of color. Um, so, um, you know, the, I got to write about a lot of great things, um, but, uh, we didn't, we just didn't pay that much attention to federal policy. Um, it didn't necessarily seem super relevant to, or the, or at least the most important stuff affecting, um, colleges in Boston. And that might've been myopic. Um, but, um, I, I really, really like right now being able to write about institutions that no one else is paying attention to. And, you know, there's just a gazillion reporters writing about, um, you know, the lawsuit challenging affirmative action at Harvard. And it's a great story. But, like, you know, I can go write about a college that no one's ever heard of. And if I can make a good case for why um, we should hear about it and what it's doing, um, then uh, there's just— um, you know, just such a great opportunity to um, lift up these stories that no one else is telling. Well, and there's so much debate in this country right now about the economy and about uh, employment. And, uh, you know, it seems like the work that you're doing is really getting at that that issue in a way that I'm not hearing a lot of people talking about it in the media. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that you're taking that particular approach. And actually, a, a question comes to mind about this sort of almost bifurcated role you're playing journalism and policy in a sense, Uh, as you put it, Mm -hmm. balancing a journalism hat and a policy hat in an email you wrote to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you you know, that long form piece for The Atlantic was was reporting. You know, it was looked like mm-hmm. uh, straight reporting. You did uh, mention the, uh, the Center for American Progress. It's not like, you know, readers would know that you're with this policy institute. Uh, you also wrote an opinion piece for The Globe um, more recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was on the last day of last year. <laughs> and um, so that's an opinion piece uh, where you're also identified as somebody with the policy institute. So both reporting and opinion writing um, balancing journalism and policy. What is that like? Um, <laughs> is this is this the way a lot of your colleagues also operate, coming from the journalism world, moving into policy? What sort of challenges, yeah. if any, does that present for you? Um, 
It, it, I think it's a really good fit, but it definitely does have challenges. I think um, it, what I'm doing is not that common. It's certainly not unheard of. Um, you know, there have been other people at CAP and, and at similar uh, think tanks that have journalism backgrounds. But most people come from having some sort of real policy background or, you know, academic background. Um, uh, but it's... Um, it, fits, it just fits really well because, um, you know, knowing how to talk to people and um, how to synthesize research and information um, is, and to write clearly is, you know, those are the main things we do. So that's, um, you know, that really makes sense. And, and I'm able to complement, you know, some of the more policy or um, uh, numbers-focused research that others are doing with, you know, the, the storytelling angle. Um, as far as the, the difficulties, I mean— uh, one thing I struggle with is just explaining to people what I do, um, because outside of D.C., very few people I found um, know what CAP is. And I um, I just, you know, I want to be uh, clear that if I'm writing something that I think, you know, might have the crossover potential to run in a place like Atlanta, the Atlantic, or right now I'm working on a piece, um, a long-form piece that will hopefully run in Politico. Like, I, I, wanna, I want people to know that, but I also don't necessarily know when I'm starting, what it's going to become. And so I, I just don't know what to call myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm a writer, what am I? Um, and, um, you know, without without giving some long explanation that's going to make someone not read the rest of my email. <laughs> right. So I, ha- I just haven't, like, figured out totally how to I. Uh, describe what I do, um, and then I guess the other thing when it just when it comes to the work and choosing um, projects to work on the the thing that I found the hardest is that as a reporter I like to see what is happening right now what I can watch with my eyes and like talking to people about what they're going through now and I think. Um, that, for example, with that piece about Amarillo College is, you know, worked well to see um, what they're struggling with as an institution and then what this particular student is struggling with. And um, so that kind of real-time um, uh, reporting I, I like. And at the same time, when you're coming from a policy angle, um, you want to have some lessons and takeaways and you want to be able to say, um, you know, this college is doing something that's working. Um, And so those two things don't always go together. Um, And that's something I've struggled with where, um, for example, I um, uh, came across another uh, community college that I thought was doing some really interesting work around um, racial equity um, and closing achievement gaps for students. And I really liked the way they talked about it and thought about it. And they just had some really amazing um, people working on this issue. But it was it, it, it became clear that it was so kind of new and, and hadn't been um, put into practice into ways that were like really clearly identifiable. So I ended up having to say, well, you know, I'll maybe I'll I'll write about them and another college and or maybe I'll wait and see what um, unfolds and come back to them in a year. Um, so it's it has, um, you know, the the kind of two different lenses of ways of looking at um, what's going on out there. Um, yeah, are, are don't always um, fully mesh, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that came to mind for me while I was reading uh, some of your articles, and as well as this Beyond Tuition report mm-hmm. that the Center for American Progress put out. 
is that really it seems like the focus of what you're doing in this uh, post-secondary education and higher education division there is focusing on sort of the affordability of a college education and the, uh, the financial uh, issues around that. And uh, man, I, I mean, this is a big issue for somebody who teaches at uh, a college, at, at an elite arts college in mm -hmm. Northeastern United States, uh, very different from that Amarillo College. Um, but some of the same issues apply. Students pay, you know, 50, 60 plus thousand dollars a year to go to Berkeley College of Music and many other colleges. And in this proposal, and I'd rather have you explain it, but it, there's <laughs> your uh, CAP is proposing huge changes in how much students have to pay for their education and that the federal government would cover um, these costs. So like, for example, if I'm remembering the figure rate, something like $60 billion a year uh, in federal funding would cover the difference in what's being proposed by CAP. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because I feel like that gets at the core of what all of you seem to be working toward mm -hmm. uh, in the higher education division. So as far as the affordability idea, um, the idea is that for low-income families, college should be free, and that's not just tuition. It's also the cost of living because for a lot – take a student who goes to a community college, tuition is a very small part of what um, their um, – their costs are, and it's things like transportation and housing and food. Um, Books, and, you know, maybe. we find yes, absolutely, yes. Um, so um, we really want to address those things to make uh, college possible for uh, low-income students, and then for uh, middle-class families, uh, the idea is that they would be expected to pay 10% of their income uh, towards college. And they wouldn't have to save for college because most families really can't save for college. So let's just get that out of the picture. And um, they would know what they would pay and it would be reasonable. And, uh, you know, uh, if they're upper income families, it would be maybe 20 percent. And, uh, you know, there would be a similar arrangement for even for private colleges, probably higher than that. But, um, you know, the idea is that if colleges want to get federal financial aid, they would have to um, really focus on affordability. Um, and now this wouldn't be completely funded by the federal government. States would have to participate in this too and mm -hmm. kind of do their share. Um, and then, again, any college that's going to be part of the system and wants to get this infusion of new money has to commit to improving their quality and um, improving equity. So they um, you know, need to be looking at their achievement gaps by race and their policies and to what extent their policies, um, you know, are favoring perhaps more wealthy students um, over low-income students or students of color. Um, and, uh, you know, so there would be performance contracts that, um, you know, where co the college would, um, you know, pledge to do certain things and um, the states would have to do their part um, and, you know, the federal government would do its part as well. So it sounds like one of the big things that you're saying is that it's about discouraging this whole saving for college expenses and the loan industry related to it. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Uh, yes. And not to say that um, those who can save for college shouldn't, um, but uh, just the reality is that most college students today can't. Um, you know, a lot of people don't actually realize who the typical student in college today is. Um, and it tends to not be the 18-year-old who is, um, you know, coming from um, the 
you know, suburban family life to move into a dorm. Um, it's mostly adult students, um, you know, mostly students of color, um, uh, students who are attending part-time and having to balance work and family responsibilities. Um, you know, like a quarter of college students today have their own children or other dependents. Wow. So, uh, of all um, students, private and public college, a quarter? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wow, quarter. 25% um, of all college mm-hmm. students in the U.S. have a child? Yes, or we'll have a dependent. So a most dependent. of those are their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, it and that is um, uh, really stunning. I think even people who work in higher ed, I've I've discussed this statistic recently. I, you know, people are amazed. Um, so the um, you know the system doesn't serve these students, and these students can't save for college um, in um, for the most part. So. Um, yeah, so it's it's getting away from the expectation that you have to save for college. And the loan, you mentioned loans, is, is a good um, issue as well where, um, you know, the loan outcomes we're seeing for students can be very negative, um, you know, for low-income students. And there's also huge racial disparities um, in um, uh, students' loan outcomes. And, you know, the uh, very high percentage of African-American students are um, – just unable to pay off their loans, and you know, there's that goes to the statistics about the racial wealth gap, and um, you know, there are just really um, systemic inequities in our country that are, you know, making this idea that you're going to um, save or borrow your way through college just not realistic for mm-hmm. today's students. Yeah, you. Uh, uh, one of the pieces I I read said that one million people default on loans every year, and that. People in the U.S. owe $1.5 trillion in federal education debt. Uh, So if what you're proposing were to change, wouldn't that essentially diminish greatly, maybe completely eliminate the the federal college Mm -hmm. education loan system? Uh, it would greatly diminish it. Absolutely. Yes. I don't know if it would eliminate it. I think right. there might be reasons that people would still choose to take out loans in certain circumstances. But um, yeah, it would. <laughs> I think it, it, would, uh, it would really help. So how does that happen? I mean, how do we change a monolithic system in a country whose politics these days in so many ways seem to be moving toward deepening problems like this rather mm-hmm. than ameliorating. Like I would think to get a policy like this to really move through considering all the implications of it would be extremely difficult, at least to get through, say, the Senate right now if it were to, if it were to oh, involve yeah. lawmakers. Right. I, I mean, we're certainly not expecting that this is something that could happen under the current um, administration. Um, I think it's, it's something to work towards and to, um, you know, hope that um, maybe after the next elections that there would be um, a consensus, um, you know, in the country to, to make some bold changes to really, um, you know, make sure that we have an economy that serves everyone in this country, um, which is really in all of our interests. Um, so I am not an expert on the politics of how you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I do, I think there's an appetite for for bold thinking um, that has changed, um, you know, since the 2016 elections and um, realizing how broken things are. Um, and I would also say that it doesn't have to be this um, gigantic reimagining of the whole system to improve things. And there are bills um, in Congress right now that um, uh, would you know, chip away at some of these things. And there's also a conversation right now about reauthorizing uh, a law called the Higher Education Act that is, you know, oversees a lot of uh, the federal relationship with 
colleges and with, you know, students through um, grants and loans and stuff like that. And, um, you know, this, these, the kinds of issues I'm talking about are, you know, issues that are, um, you know, being discussed right now as negotiations go on. And um, Patty Murray, who is the um, uh, ranking Democrat on the Education Committee in the Senate, um, has, you know, been talking about a lot of these things, um, the importance of equity, the importance of a federal state partnership to, um, you know, to uh, reinvest in higher education. Um, so I, you know, I think that there's, you know, there are definitely improvements that can be made along the way. Uh, that seems, it, it seems like there's a lot of room for improvement. And, and <laughs> one thing I'm curious about from your perspective um, is if we look back at the mid-60s, Lyndon Bain Johnson, LBJ, mm-hmm. the president, mm-hmm. passed that uh, Higher Education Act uh, to try to make college affordable to everybody. Um, it seemed to work well initially. How did things change so rapidly since to bring mm-hmm. us to this place where it's just mm-hmm. gotten so ridiculously expensive? <laughs> oh, that is a good question. Um, I don't know that I've thought deeply recently about kind of the path of history that brought us from there to from there to here. But um, you know, there's just there. Um, there's a, a Pell Grant is kind of, is the central federal investment in low-income students. And, um, you know, the uh, the value of a dollar has changed quite a lot since LBJ, yeah. um, you know, first made this promise. And so um, a grant that covered um, like 80 percent of the cost of uh, tuition now covers 30 percent. Um, so, um, you know, it's just this erosion and, you know, lack of awareness that um, – uh, this you know promise is is slipping away, and at the same time, of course, the economy's changed to require a college degree or you know some college like ninety nine percent of the jobs created since the um, the great recession required some college so you know, people have to go to college who might not have the resources to do it. Um, and, you know, there also, I, I wrote in the, the piece um, about Amarillo College, I wrote about, um, you know, kind of the decline in the safety net and, you know, other programs that have addressed poverty in this country, um, like welfare and food stamps. Um, you know, these things have, um, you know, also evaporated um, to some extent. And, uh, you know, so folks who you know, might not have had to go to college in another era, they have to go to college to, um, you know, support their families mm-hmm. and um, give their kids a better life. And, you know, there aren't those other social safety net programs there to support them. Um, and they're here. So, you know, they see, okay, if I go to college, like I can get this support, um, I can take out loans, I can do it. Um, you know, they, they, you know, it's so, um, you know, it's like that dream is so tantalizing. And then, um you know, we're we're just not supporting them. You know, we're we're not really making it feasible for so many mm-hmm. students. You know, you, you told that story in the Atlantic, at, at, and you've talked a lot about the the problem at publicly funded schools and community colleges. Um, and it sounds like like that college at Amarillo has uh, mm-hmm. uh, very uh, has taken a very active approach to helping students who are in poverty. Um, as far as all of these proposals go that's coming out of the Center for American Progress. Do you get any pushback or resistance from any colleges or universities when they hear about this, whether private or public? Do they mm-hmm. ever come back and say, like, this would be very difficult to make these kinds of changes? What kind of input do you get from from those places? 
Yeah, um, it depends on the issues. Um, you know, uh, I have other colleagues who work on um, some things that are definitely out of my expertise um, related to um, accountability for colleges and the accreditation system. And, you know, those, like, institutions don't always like the things that, um, you know, we are calling for. Um, as far as my work, um, yeah, I, I think there is uh, there is pushback about you know, well, college is not a social service agency. So, um, you know, we're we're here to, to teach classes. And, um, you know, that is somewhat understandable when these colleges are so underfunded. Like community colleges, first of all, they educate four in 10 Americans who are in college. So it's a huge part of the higher education system. But a community college gets half the funding of a public research university to educate students who most, you know, for the most part have been like the least well served by, you know, their K-12 education and, um, you know, other social forces. So, um, you know, when they say they don't have money to do it, um, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, But um, they, they also sort of have no choice but to think differently about what they're doing because their outcomes are, are not acceptable. And, um, you know, yes, we can, you know, blame the kind of policy landscape for that, but they have to do the best they can um, with what they have. And that, um, I think, really does entail uh, now thinking about things like, you know, hunger and homelessness among their students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, if you're hungry and homeless, how can you possibly get your math homework done? Um a lot of people listening to this right now, or uh, or probably everyone, is aware of this college admissions bribery scandal story mm. that broke uh, mm-hmm. in mid March of 2019, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is this the this case where well heeled parents paid millions in total to a college admissions coach who, through fraud and bribes, helped their kids get admitted to elite colleges and universities. I'm wondering what connections you see between this scandal and the work you're doing with CAP. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, One reaction that I think was very important to this story was um, coming from people of color who have been told for years that they didn't deserve to get into the college that they got into um, or to get the job that they got. And what this scandal shows is, um, you know, of course, this is a small number of people who are bribing their way into elite colleges, but it did show a window onto these sports that are elite white sports. And um, I actually have a, a colleague who has a forthcoming paper, actually a couple of colleagues um, that probably will have come out by the time this airs, looking at um uh, the NCAA, like Power Five conferences, and um, there are like there are twice as many white men who get scholarships as black men, and people don't know that because um, the, you know the very high profile sports have um, a lot more African American players. Um, but there are just all these you know the squash team and the sailing team and lacrosse, and and they're um, you know th- you know and then you look at these consultants who um, you know help. Uh, applicants, you know, shape themselves um, over the course of years. And it's, um, you know, the system is just so tilted, um, uh, you know, towards like wealthy white folks. And uh, I think that's something we need to think about when we're talking about, you know, the value of affirmative action um, 
in our society. So, um, like we in the beyond tuition um, vision that we have, we would, um, you know, require that colleges, um, you know, uh, address things that are um, causing inequities in their student population, like um, early decision and legacy admissions. And, um, you know, but I, I would also just step back and say that, um, you know, this is involves such a tiny slice of higher ed. Right. And, um, you know, we, we need to be thinking about um, what, how we're serving students who go to open admissions uh, schools where, you know, there, you know, there's no discussion of affirmative action or, or privilege because privileged people don't go there and, um, you know, everyone gets in. Um, and, you know, those, um, those places just need more attention and, and more funding. Um, and like, for example, right now I'm, I'm writing something about a large community college in Southern California. And I, um, did a little math and found um, that this uh, college has um, twice as many Latino students as the entire Ivy League put together. Um, And, um, you know, it's, and certainly outside of Southern California, no one's ever heard of this, this school. So um, uh, there's, there's a bigger picture to think about as well. Yeah. Wow. Well, Marcella Bombardieri, thank you so much for your work. Looking forward to more of it in the future. Thanks for your time today. Rob, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Learn more about Marcella Bombardieri's work and writing at AmericanProgress.org. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to the Media Narrative podcast and newsletter at TheMediaNarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>